Hi, welcome back to the TT Wine Explorer podcast. I'm Tanya Tomaszewska. For those new to the show, this podcast is about my own journey through the wide world of wine. It's about the discussions which I have along the way with various people who are somehow connected to that world of wine, be it by way of wine travel, winemaking, business owners, or fellow wine enthusiasts and cork dorks like me. Wine and food are meant to dance together, so this means that I also cross paths with a lot of food lovers and chefs, like my friend Graham McLennan. Graham is a fellow lawyer, chef, and the creator and host of his own podcast, Chef Demoni. As you'll recall, Graham was my first guest when I started this TT Wine Explorer podcast. In that first full-length episode, Graham and I talk about Las Vegas. I can't tell you how many people contacted me after that episode to let me know how much they enjoyed hearing Graham's story and his observations about Vegas. This included people who told me that before listening to our episode, they had no interest in learning about, let alone going to Vegas. And now, Sin City is high on their list. For me, this is what wine travel can be all about, if you're open to it. It's about learning, adventure, and surprise. So when I saw that Graham was off to Italy this autumn, and that his adventure included a stint in Sardinia, I knew that he and I had to speak again. I hope that you enjoy this sidebar chat with Graham McLennan today. Let's fly. Approach the bench. It's time for sidebar. Hi, Graham. Thanks so much for coming back to join me as my guest today. Hello, Tanya. It is my absolute pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. I love the continuum upon which you travel. The last time we spoke, it was about Las Vegas, which, as you, as you described it, it's the shark that keeps moving forward. But today, we're off to somewhere dramatically different, Sardinia, where, as we'll discuss, it's all about downshifting. So you've just come back from what sounds to be an epic trip in Italy. For the last few years in particular, I've really been intrigued by, by Sardinia, so I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about Sardinia today. It's definitely on my place, uh, my list to go. But before we dive into our chat about that magical Mediterranean island, can you share a little bit about the other places in Italy which you visited before you landed in Sardinia on this most recent trip of yours and maybe provide a few highlights from your stops? Absolutely. I'd be very happy to. Happy to. It's funny. Um, immediately before Sardinia, and that just popped into my head uh, with your introductory remarks about Las Vegas, we flew into Sardinia from Venice. And I was joking on social media, I posted because I have a lot of uh, Vegas connection friends who follow my social media accounts. So I said, hey, turns out there's a Venice in Italy as well. And it's almost as beautiful as the original in Las Vegas. <laughs> and uh, all of my all of my Vegas loving friends loved those comments, and everybody else hated those comments. So it was very divisive. But polarizing. It continues pol- to be polarizing. <laughs> yes, it sure does. Um, but before we got to Venice, we we flew into Milan. We flew in and out of Milan. We picked up a car as soon as we landed in Milan, and we drove immediately to Piedmont. Uh, And this is just a glorious food region. We had been there in 2021, and we went back this year entire. Well, apart from the fact that it's a fantastic location and a delicious location to visit, we went back because in 2021, we had not been able to get into one restaurant. So 
I was determined to get into this restaurant. I actually that is committed to the cause. <laughs> yes. So I emailed. We learned. We did get into the restaurant. We learned that they only open up their reservations twice a year. So every six months they open it up. But our Airbnb that we were staying at in this little tiny village, our Airbnb host is friends with Gemma, and this restaurant is called Osteria de Gemma, and it was just spectacular. It's the it's in this little tiny village called Rodino and Gemma has been making the same food, which is hyper local uh, Piedmontese cuisine. She's been making the same food, I think the same menu for decades and people go entirely for that. So that was a highlight, the local pasta, tallerine it's called, very, very egg yolk heavy pasta, delicious and uh, family style plating, it was wonderful. And then the other really standout restaurant from the early days on this trip was a repeat. We had been there before in this place, uh, also in Rodino. I would highly recommend any food and wine loving people go to Rodino. It's a village of 300 people, but it has spectacular restaurants. And this was called Uri, U-R-I, Uri Sapori Condivisi. And it is owned and operated by a young couple. Uh, they were both chefs, but she, Federica, now does the front of house work. And he, Kim, is the chef. Uh, Federica is local. She's Piedmontese. Uh, Kim is Korean. He came from Korea to Asti in Piedmont to go to culinary school. Uh, they met afterwards at a restaurant they were both staging at in Barolo, which uh, your wine-loving friends would know well. The town of Barolo is very nearby. So they met, fell in love, and they now have this restaurant called Uri, and it is stunning. It's, um, again, hyper-local food, but it's got some Korean influences and cooking techniques that Kim brings. and Wow, uh, and all yeah. in the town of 300 people. All in a town of 300 people. I, I, I said to to be uh, tying this into Las Vegas, as I like to do with most things, I said, you know what Rodino reminds me of? And she said, what? And I said, Las Vegas. And she, of course, she looked at me like I was crazy. But I said, honestly, you can walk 100 meters and you're at the next spectacular restaurant. So uh, Rodino, much tinier than Vegas, but they've got a tourism base that allows them to have these restaurants that are well supported. So those were those were two standouts in our early, early days. And then we we drove to Bologna. We had four nights in Bologna, which is just a crazy good food city, uh, two nights in Venice and and then on to Sardinia. So your gourmandizing started strong and frenzy, but it sounds also such a relaxed pace. Um, despite having so many restaurants in a village of 300, it sounds to me that um, life can be uh, slow over dinner, which sounds fantastic. And I think that gets me into our next destination, um, Sardinia. So where to start? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, Sardinia, for those who aren't familiar, is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean uh, Sea. It's close to Corsica, uh, another island, which is part of France. Um, and I've been to Corsica and I did a one week village to village walking trip there. And I really loved it. Uh, and one of my impressions during that adventure was that the Corsicans embrace, um, you know, wonderful food and wine scene and very much off their own land and their sea. Um, and they have, they have a distinct culture compared to their mainland compatriots. So I guess from altitude and before we kind of dive into a bit more granular about Sardinia, from what you observed during, I think you were there for a week, is there a similar feeling in Sardinia vis-a-vis -vis Sardinians being, you know, part of Italy yet, 
you know, a little bit remote on an island? Did you, did you pick something up? You know, you went from mainland um, over to an island. So did you, did you perceive a difference in that tone? I did. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, before I give you more on that, just talking about Corsica and how close it is to Sardinia. This was funny. Over the course of our week there, it didn't happen to me, but it happened repeatedly to my wife. Her phone would inform her every now and again. It would say, welcome to France. <laughs> You're in Corsica. And she would say, no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm on Sardinia. So they are indeed very, very close. Um, it's interesting. One person that we met on Sardinia had this uh, way of referring to Sardinia and the rest of Italy that I found interesting. She would say, and she had spent a lot of her working life in Milan and had, had come back to Sardinia a few years ago. And she would say, not when I was in Milan, she would say when I was in Italy. Uh, <laughs> so she seemed to regard Italy as as a completely different country. And, you know, uh, this was a, a close to three week trip. So and we saw some of Italy. So I, I'm by no means an expert. And it wasn't a long, long trip. But I did have that sense that people had um, a feeling that Sardinia was uh, was a very special place, which it is and was separate from the rest of Italy. I think I interviewed on my podcast a year or two ago, a fellow who was a chef in the U.S. Navy, and he cooked in Italy for years and years. So he had lots of great things to say about the cuisine there. But one thing that he said that I found very interesting was he said, you know, Italy is quite a young country. And at first I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, when you think about it, the unification in the 19th century where the modern state of Italy uh, began, that was in 1861, I can now say because I looked it up on Wikipedia. But I thought that was a really interesting point, and I think it's telling because, of course, Italy is ancient, but the country that we now call Italy has been around for not that much longer than Canada. Uh, Canada, uh, as we know, it's starting in 1867. So, so I think there is still this very much um, uh, differentiated aspects of the country. The, the regions are so important, and the, the food, the culture, the language can be so different uh, from place to place. So that certainly is reflected. I mean, I can speak to the wine culture and you certainly on the food, but, you know, Italy is comprised of so many regions of really distinct uh, wine production areas and grapes. Uh, and getting back to Sardinia and, and island and, and uh, distinctness. And I guess to your point about uh, recent modern history, at the same token, you know, geologically ancient. And my understanding is as distinct from the mainland of Italy, you know, Sardinia has a very different geological history, one of which is that it's a lot of volcanic activity um, was part of its formation. So this ties into, you know, for me, wine, because I love what I call island wines and what are increasingly being called volcanic wines. So these are wines from places like Sicily, the Azores, Canary Islands, Sardinia, and other regions which have volcanic activity in their past, like Oregon and Napa Valley, and even here in British Columbia. You know, I could do a whole hour on volcanic wine topic. I won't do that today. But, um, you know, just taking a step back from altitude about geography, um, and since I haven't been there yet, you know, in terms of when you were there in Sardinia, you know, how, how would you describe the topography from what you saw in terms of the coastline and the elevation and the terrain. I mean, did you feel it's volcanic past? Were there different kind of climate zones that you traveled through? 
Well, I would say coming as we did from the north of Italy, the whole of the island of Sardinia felt like a different climate zone because it was substantially warmer than the other places we had been. And we were so lucky. We had much better weather than we had any right to expect um, in the middle and toward the end of November. Um, but yes, we saw variations for sure in topography. We landed in, I'm still trying to learn how to pronounce this city name. It's, it's, I joke that it sounds to my Canadian ears like Calgary, but of course it's not. It's <laughs> Cagliari, Cagliari. And it is the, the biggest city um, on Sardinia. So we landed there and we headed north immediately up toward Bosa. There are so, when, when we circled back at the end of our trip, we spent more time in Cagliari and we went to some of the beach areas there. Sardinia has these stunning, huge, long white sand beaches uh, with the gorgeous Mediterranean Sea beyond. But heading north, uh, it very quickly became very twisty. The roads were very, very, very narrow, very, very twisty. Um, a little bit stressful driving, but glorious scenery. And as we pulled into Bosa, it was like looking down, it was looking at down into this verdant valley from these mountain peaks. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, we spent a couple of days there and then we headed further north and we stayed in a little, or just outside a little village called Luogo Santo. And from there, we were able to go really to the northern tip of the island. And there, I would say, again, we spent some time on these beaches and off-season travel. I have to say, it is a glorious thing. We were literally, B and I were the only two people on this beach that just extended forever. And we hiked, in order to get to it, you had to hike through and over these volcanic rock formations. Uh, so it was just stunning, absolutely beautiful. But I would say from, from what I saw, it was on the northern end of the island that I saw the most um, obvious evidence of volcanic activity. And it was these gorgeous rock formations that spilled out into the ocean. Wow. And, you know, when you're describing it, it seems to me there'd be a lot of blue um, because of the ocean and the sky. You told me I had great weathers and weather and, and green because I know that there are vines there and I, I assume there are some lush aspects. And you know, this gets into my next question, and again, on the topic of zones, but um, maybe a different type of zone. And this is something that you discussed in your recent Chef Demoni podcast episode you called Snapshot of Sardinia, I think. Um, and that's about the concept of blue zones in the world, and that Sardinia is considered to be one of them. Uh, I've been really thinking a lot about living in and embracing and how we feel the benefits of what we call blue space and green space. Can you explain a little bit about what blue zone means in the context of Sardinia and, you know, what life is like there? Sure. So as I understand it, there are five blue zones on the planet. And again, I've just started to read a little bit more into this topic because we met some people on Sardinia that that sparked this as an interest for me. And it's, it's not the whole of Sardinia, it's a portion of Sardinia that is a blue zone. And the other four in the world, there's one in Costa Rica, one in California, interestingly enough. And then the last two are on specific islands in Japan and in Greece. And blue zones are the, the very simple take, which is my understanding is a very simple one, they are places where people live long, long lives. So longevity is a, uh, a common theme among blue zones. 
the best article that I've seen on it was years ago uh, in the New York Times. It's a great article. I would say it's worth looking up. And the title of it, as I recall, is The Island Where People Forget to Die. And it is the <laughs> island of I Ikaria. And there's some great stories about the residents of Ikaria. What seems to be the magic, and in the New York Times article, they go into the research behind this, and they they looked at Ikaria, but they looked at other Mediterranean islands very close by that had similar weather, they had uh, similar dietary patterns, that kind of thing. And they concluded, or this article did anyway, that it was the magic was really a combination of factors. So a healthy diet, for sure exercise for sure, time outdoors, absolutely. Uh, socialization, very, very important. You know, playing dominoes with your neighbors, very, very important. Perhaps over a glass of wine, that seemed to be a consistent theme too. You know, a glass or two of wine a day, perhaps not more than that, but moderate drinking seemed to be uh, another factor as well. And certainly on Sardinia, we kept, we were amazed actually the whole of our trip there we kept running into people who had made a conscious decision to to downshift. And, and I use that term because that was the one used by our new friend Alberto. And, and on our last days on the island in Cagliari, back in the, in the big city, we met up with Alberto. And he is um, he's a former academic, a former statistician, and he left that life behind him. And he became a tuk-tuk driver. And he said, you know what? I, I want to share my love of my city and my island with people. And that's what he does. So he drives you around for an hour or two, depending on what you book, uh, in this tiny little tuk-tuk, two tiny little seats in the back. And he shares the history and takes you up to viewpoints so you can look over the, the whole of the city and see the beaches. And his take on it was that Cagliari, at least, is a great, that's another of his words, a great compromise. He said, we have so many good things here. We're a, a city of about 500,000 people, so we have some sophistication. We've got a great university. We've got an international airport. Yet, we're small enough that you can get out of town. You can get to a beach fairly quickly. Uh, you can choose to live more simply. There is wonderful because Sardinia is uh, so productive in terms of food and wine. Uh, there's great local produce. So these were the people that we met on mm -hmm. Sardinia. And and I don't know if we were just lucky or if everybody on Sardinia is yeah, like that. Yeah, well, or you had it, a weak sample group, yeah, right? So, yes, that's right. And, I'm so happy that you met Alberto. Uh, well, for many reasons, but one of them selfishly for me is I would love to borrow and start using that word downshift. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so applicable. And I think we use different words Um in these uh, times uh, about how we try to do that. And so I, I, I absolutely love that. Um, you mentioned in your uh, snapshot episode on Chef Demoni, another person that you met and maybe someone, well, um, that resonates with me because another former lawyer, <laughs> yes. I mean, you're on the tool yes. still, but you've also yeah. had other uh, adventures away from the, the legal tools. <laughs> on, on the um, tools. I like I'm that not phrase. on the tools yes. right now, so to speak, <laughs> uh, as a practicing lawyer, although I enjoy drawing upon them daily. Um, but you mentioned uh, that you met uh, a lawyer, a former lawyer, I think she's not practicing anymore, from Milan who made a sea change herself. She moved to Sardinia and started a pasta cooking school. And she's planning to perhaps expand this to a wellness center. And, um, you know, your account of your discussion with her is that although she doesn't drink, um, she sees the benefits or in, in, in Sardinia of people who have, you know, sipped 
whatever it is, a glass or two of wine a day or, um, or certain number a week. Um, and that she sees that as one of, I think it is three pillars of living uh, a healthy life. And this is from her own observations, I think, from her family. Is that right? Yeah, this is Simonetta. And she she is the woman who referred, she's the person I mentioned earlier who referred to Milan as, you know, when I was right. on Italy or in, <laughs> in Italy. And now I'm on Sardinia. <laughs> and uh, so she was a, as I understand it, a corporate lawyer in Milan. And four years ago, she said, okay, that's enough of that. And she moved back to Sardinia and she acquired some property, including her, I believe her grandmother's uh, house in, again, a tiny village um, in sort of central northern Sardinia. Gorgeous old stone house. The original wood-fired stone stove is there. And she, she acquired some buildings as well around this house. And I think her longer term vision is to create a, a bigger wellness center and maybe a, a longevity center. So she puts on these pasta making classes. And yes, she sees three real pillars to longevity. One is making pasta and it is the making of the pasta. That is the key. Um, I think the eating it is good too. She uses local, <laughs> organic, you know, delightful uh, flour. But she said, in fact, she left us making, we made various shapes of pasta. We made the pasta dough and then made them into various shapes. And she had us making this one shape where you roll out really thin strands of pasta. It looks like peachy if people have ever seen peachy pasta. And then you take these strands and you braid them together into these quite complicated shapes. And so she showed us how to do it and we eventually got onto it and we were able to do it. And she said, okay, I'm going to leave you doing that and I'm going to go make some lunch for us and, or work on lunch and then I'll come back. She said, I'm leaving you to do this for a specific reason and I'll tell you why later. And so she went away and we kept making pasta and, and it was, you know, I'm a decent cook and it was difficult. It was a new technique to me. So I was concentrating on this pasta and trying to get it right. And of course, my wife, who doesn't cook nearly as much as I do, was doing it better than me. So I was <laughs> inspired to try to do my best. And then Simonetta came back and she said, uh, now, while I was gone, you weren't thinking about anything, were you? And I uh -huh. said, ah, no, I wasn't. I was mm. hell-bent on making this braided pasta as best I could. And she said, that is the magic mm. of pasta making. You're absolutely in the moment. Mm. So really, it's a form a meditation. of... It's a meditation. Yeah, it's a form of meditation. Wow. And wow. beyond that, she said, traditionally, pasta making would be done uh, by eight or ten women in the village who would get together and make a bunch of pasta. And she said, and then you have the combined benefit of not only this meditative aspect to making pasta, but the socialization as well. Mm -hmm. so it's like going to the psychologist. You've got <laughs> well, eight or 10 friends together. Yeah. It's talking it out, right? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And then, and then she showed us, we did a little tour of her property and she showed us her winemaking or a winemaking room had this manual press. And she showed us some of the wine that she has been making. Um, and she said, yep, wine is another pillar. And then the final one was um, a healthy diet, not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. Mediterranean said, diet. Mediterranean diet. Yep. Yeah. And she said, you know, you should eat fruits and vegetables and they should be from your own garden. So there you go. So just on the, on the no drinking part, uh, you know, increasingly we are seeing more and more people reducing their alcoholic intake. And, and I mentioned on the no drinking part, because you said, you know, Simonetta, Simonetta herself doesn't necessarily partake in the wine, although she sees 
what she believes is a benefit to some moderate drinking in the diet. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are reducing their alcoholic intake, they're cutting it, they're never really starting. There's much more of a conscious consumption or consumerism these days around alcoholic beverages for, for a lot of reasons. And I know that I myself, I'm mixing up things a lot with low alk and no alk drinks and wine and then times when I'm not drinking any wine. Um, for me, this doesn't preclude wine adventure. You know, one of the things that I love about wine exploring is that it's not just about wine. It's about everything around it, at least in my in my view and observations yes. for many people that I see wine exploring. You know, I've led a lot of wine tasting and private tours where there are some guests who don't actually drink wine and some smell it, some don't smell it. But they like learning about it and they like experiencing the place where it's made and hearing from the people who make it and, and experiencing that passion. So why I'm mentioning this is that I understand uh, that your visit to Sardinia was a, was a dry one. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, how did you experience the wine culture there? It's a wine producing region. It makes white and red wines like Vermentino and Cananao. Um, did you feel, you know, because food and wine go together and, and the culture, did you feel... Um, fragmented at all in terms of not drinking the juice or, you know, are my <laughs> observations about wine exploring and you actually don't need to drink the stuff. Do you, did that resonate or how did, how it, do you experience it? Yeah, no, your comments absolutely do resonate. And one of the, I think the thing that I say the most on my podcast, which focuses on food more than anything is that at the end of the day, food is about human connection. Of course, it's about food. I love preparing food. I love eating food. I love making delicious food, experiencing it. But really, the magic is how it brings people together. And I think what you're saying about wine is it's the same thing. You, you have people together, and there's so many ways to be interested in it and to learn about it. So, yeah, I've been on a, a dryness kick for a few months now. And um, it's interesting. The, the impact of that kick, I would say, is more noticeable when I travel. I have to say Italy accommodated it very easily. I find Europe really accommodates it well. There are great zero-proof options on the menu. Um, I drank a lot of zero-proof Moretti beer on this trip mm. because we're oh, wow. in, in Italy. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and it's delicious. It's, it's yeah. actually a great, um, a great mix for, or a great match with a lot of foods. Um, I would, and anyway, I, I don't, so I don't know that I felt disconnected from it. Occasionally I thought, well, a glass of wine would go well with this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure I will have that again. Yeah. But um, I, I noticed that there was a much more, so here's the other thing. I've been to Vegas twice and Tahoe once this year, also through this dryness kick. And I hardly noticed it at all in those mm -hmm. places because I just, yeah. it, it was a, it, very easy just to, to tune it out and to do other things. In Italy, the wine is more integrated into the daily life, for sure. So no matter where we were, when I was sitting down for lunch at a very casual place, virtually everybody is having a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah. But that said, um, and as I mentioned earlier, they accommodated it so they accommodate not drinking so well with menu choices and with no raised eyebrows or fuss at all that you just see the wine and you ask for an alternative and it's there. So does that answer the question? I would say it I really I, does. I, I, think yeah. you, I think you hit a lot of interesting points where, again, I think we could spend an hour just on this topic mm -hmm. in broad terms, because, uh, you know, I think in particular in Europe, um, where wine has been such a part of life, especially in the large wine producing countries like France and, and Italy, um, you know, my guess is that the big producers are really spending a lot of time on R&D 
on their efforts to make dealkalized wine um, or no alk wines. And and certainly there's a lot, I mean, just having come back from London myself, I see how much there is on the market. And, you know, in France where there has been a decrease in wine consumption, which just <laughs> seems very wow. disparate what? historically from French yes. life, yes. you know, I think people are going to start to think, well, you know, we still want to clink glasses. It's kind of like you can clink glasses with beer, you know, and there'll be people who are working to have um, perhaps no elk or de-elk wine that is closer to the thing, so to speak. So, so I appreciate your comments and your observations on that. Um, but, you know, getting back to the food uh, <laughs> part, um, you know, I remember during our, one of our sidebar chats on your podcast earlier this year, I was telling you how much I was loving Vermentino from Sardinia. And for those <laughs> not familiar with Vermentino, it's a delicious white wine. It's kind of a mix or a swap with Pinot Gris, a, a very kind of... Um, textural Pinot Gris or, or a Chardonnay or a Sauvignon Blanc. You know, you can find stone fruit, green tones, fresh. Maybe there's some minerality, really food friendly. So we were talking about that before you went on your trip. Um, so my guess is you didn't try any Vermentino. No Vermentino. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I'll have to go myself and try it. That's right. But I'm... you were telling me about a really specific type of Sardinian pasta, which intrigued you and you really wanted to taste it. So I want to know is, did you find that pasta? What's it called? And, you know, was it all that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. We, yes, yes, and yes. We we found it and I ate it and I loved it. It didn't happen until our last two nights on uh, on Sardinia when we were back in the, the big city of Cagliari. And um, I had thought and hoped that it might be one of the ones that we made in the pasta making class with Simonetta, but, but it wasn't. So when we got back to the bigger city, I thought I have to, this is my chance. I have to find this pasta. So we went to a restaurant that Google reliably informed me was well-regarded for their take on this pasta. So it is called, and I've got my pronunciation better now. I worked with our waiter <laughs> in Sardinia. They are called Cooler Jones, C-U-L-U-R-G-I-O-N-E-S, Cooler Jones. And they are um, a stuffed pasta they're very much like a dumpling. They're very much like a pierogi, actually. So, oh, I was going to say, I mean, every culture has a dumpling of some description. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and this one is, uh, this one is a light. It is, so it's uh, pasta dough, of course. And the filling is a mixture of potato, pecorino, pecorino cheese, and mint. Oh, wow. Uh, and it mint is part sounds amazing. delicious. Yeah, it all goes together really, really well. And then it's traditionally, I think, served with a very simple tomato sauce. And I had that version and it was great. But I had two other versions that I think, if I'm honest, I liked even more. One was with um, a combination of walnuts and pine nuts scattered over wow. the top. Wow. That was delicious. And then I've got to say... Uh, this is probably the least traditional version that I had, but it was my favorite. Um, Cooler Jones served with a leek cream. And oh my gosh. they were just stunning. <laughs> I'm kind of feeling the Vermentino would go with any of those. So I guess my question is, did you learn how to make it? And can I come over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did not, but I am willing to learn. So if you'd like to give it a go, I could oh. use the help. I think it would. And you know what? Simonetta would be all in favor of that because it would be a fantastic group activity. I can just see the laughs we would have trying to because they're pleated dumplings. They're gorgeous. But I just wow. know. 
from having tried to make gyoza in the past, I know uh, yeah. I would have a long way to go to get Well, to- the Polish uh, streak in me with the pierogies and loving yeah. dumplings, I feel that this is a natural pairing for me. <laughs> with so. or without Vermentino, I don't need the wine part. I'll take the dumpling part. That's um, right. Graham, thank you so much. Uh, I think we'll leave it at that for today, not because we have a lack of topics to discuss, but uh, you know, perhaps we'll save some for another time and another sidebar chat that we have. So Thanks for joining me. I always love our discussions and uh, I love traveling uh, vicariously through you and with you virtually to other countries. And, um, you know, I look forward to chatting with you about another destination sometime soon. So thanks so much for joining. You are absolutely welcome, Tanya. It is always so much fun, our discussions. Uh, I look forward to the next one. Salute. Thank you for joining me on my TT Wine Explorer podcast today. Stay tuned for the next episode. You can follow me on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until then, remember to keep tasting, learning, and living. Music.